Chapter 13 of The Ocean of Air, Meteorology for Beginners. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ocean of Air, Meteorology for Beginners, by Agnes Giburn. Water in the Atmosphere. Air is never perfectly dry. We talk of damp air, or dry air, and of very dry air, but the dryness is at most only comparative. Atmospheric air is not found utterly devoid of moisture. The use of the word very shows this. If the air were absolutely dry, we should not call it very dry. A perfect square is not very square, but simply square. If something is spoken of as very square, we understand that the said thing is not usually square, and that for once it nearly approaches squareness. So when we talk of air that is very dry, we only mean that it approaches more nearly than usual to complete dryness. The ocean of air which surrounds our earth is commonly spoken of as the atmosphere. More strictly, it consists of two atmospheres, each separate from the other. There is the atmosphere of dry air, formed of oxygen and nitrogen mixed together, there is also the atmosphere of water vapor. The atmosphere of dry air remains always gaseous, except when locally interfered with for the moment by burning and breathing operations. It also remains the same in quantity and quality. The atmosphere of vapor is in a state of perpetual change. The amount of vapor present in any one place is always varying. These two atmospheres float together intermingled in the closest companionship. The particles of each lie among and between the particles of the other. This is a common state of things with gases, because gas particles are far apart. Two solids or liquids cannot occupy the same spot, but two bodies of gas or vapor do so without difficulty. Strictly speaking, the loose floating particles of one slip freely among the loose floating particles of the other. As the atmosphere of dry gases is very much the more abundant of the two, we usually speak of it as the atmosphere par excellence, and of the floating moisture as an important and changeable ingredient in the atmosphere. Enormous quantities of watery vapor float at all times in the ocean of air, for the air is incessantly at work, hiding away supplies of vapor in its secret recesses, giving forth fresh supplies for the use of the world. You have watched the long cloud of white fog pouring from the funnel of a steam engine. Not smoke, for smoke is unburnt carbon, and not steam, for real steam is invisible, but white fog or mist springing from steam. You have noted how quickly it vanishes. That fog is made entirely of water. When it disappears, the water has passed into the atmosphere there to float as invisible vapor. You have observed a similar white fog pouring from the spout of a kettle, more correctly, from the stream of invisible steam which issues from the spout when the water boils. If you look closely, you will notice a little space between the end of the spout and the beginning of the small white cloud. This little space, apparently empty, is filled with real invisible steam. That cloud is all made of water, and it too passes rapidly away as vapor into the air. You have seen how a wet cloth hung before a fire or placed with warm sunshine 
will gradually lose its dampness and become dry. All the water which soaked that cloth and made it wet has passed into the air to float as water vapor in the atmosphere. You have known ponds and rivulets shrink and lessen, perhaps quite dry up in a spell of hot weather. The whole body of pond or rivulet water has been, so to speak, drunk up by the thirsty air. No longer visible as liquid water, it wanders free and unseen as vapor through the ocean of air. This passing of water into the atmosphere is called evaporation. Water, as already explained, may be at any time in any one of the three forms of matter, the solid, the liquid, and the gaseous. It is solid as ice, it is liquid as water, it is gaseous as steam or vapor. That which causes it to pass from one state to another is increase or decrease of heat. The effect of heat upon almost all substances is to make them expand or grow larger. The effect of cold is to make them contract or grow smaller. Suppose you have an iron ball which will just drop through a ring with no spare space left. If you heat the ball, it will grow larger and will rest upon the ring instead of falling through. The heat has expanded the substance, driving farther apart the minute separate particles of which it is made, so that as a whole it must take up more room. When a solid substance is melted or thawed into a liquid, the liquid, as a rule, occupies more room than the solid did. It has expanded or grown larger. Its particles are farther apart. There are a few apparent exemptions to this rule, owing to the manner in which solids are formed through crystallization. When water freezes into ice, the minute ice needles cross one another in a peculiar method of arrangement, by which large unfilled gaps are left in the midst of them. Thus, ice is really larger and occupies more space than the same quantity of water, even though the tiny particles of each ice needle have actually drawn more closely together. The same thing is seen with the solid and liquid forms of iron, of bismuth, and of antimony. Well for us that it is so with water. If water, becoming a solid, shrank in size and increased in weight, results would be disastrous. Every water surface, in the winter of temperate regions, would form, on the first frosty day, a layer of ice. The ice would shrink and remain at the bottom, another and another ice layer forming above, and shrinking to bear it company. In this manner, every pond, every lake, nay, even ocean waters not far north, would become dense masses of ice. No moderate summer heat would suffice to thaw these masses. That iron and bismuth follow the same rule is interesting but comparatively unimportant to mankind. That water should do so does appear to be a most merciful provision for the world generally. When a liquid substance is changed into a gas or vapor, the gas or vapor takes up always a great deal more room than the liquid did. How much more depends on its degree of heat? In any case, it expands enormously, the particles floating far apart. This change of size or volume goes on to such an extent that one cubic inch of water will spread out into nearly one cubic foot of steam. A solid substance is of a certain definite shape and occupies a definite amount of room. 
The amount varies slightly, since even a solid swells and shrinks a little by being made hotter or colder. The gold ring, which just fits your finger on a cold day, will probably be rather tight on a very hot day, for your finger is apt to swell with the heat and to shrink with the cold to a greater degree than the gold of the ring. Still, the variation with a solid is at its most slight. The shape, and generally speaking the size, are constant. If put into a large empty box, it will not alter its shape or grow larger to fill the box. A liquid substance has no definite shape of its own, but flows easily into the outlines of any vessel that may contain it, while it too occupies a definite amount of space. A pint of water, poured from a pint measure into a quart measure, will not swell out to fill the bigger vessel. It will only spread to cover the bottom, remaining in quantity one pint still. Most liquids, like solids, gently expand with heat and shrink with cold, but to no great extent. As gas or vapor has no particular shape and occupies no particular space, we may talk of a cubic foot of steam, referring to the stream as it first springs from boiling water, or to a cubic foot of air at a certain distance above Earth's surface. In reality, the amount of steam or vapor, gas or air, which fills a small vessel, will also fill a large one. Gas is so elastic as to be able to stretch itself to any extent. In the matter of compressing gas into a smaller space, there are early limits, for a gas will by no means endure any amount of squeezing. The separate particles of gas, more especially of a heated gas, are always striving to get farther apart. To give them extra room is to fall in with their inborn tendencies. To press them closer together is to go in the teeth of those natural tendencies. Suppose you have a pint measure full of gas, of any gas you choose, or if you like, of common air, and a quart measure emptied of air. You pour the contents of the pint measure into the quart measure, taking care to let none escape. The pint of gas will at once expand to fill the quart measure. You then pour the contents of the quart measure into a gallon measure with the same precautions. The gas will instantly expand to fill the gallon measure. In thus expanding, the gas or air grows thinner. If you pull out a piece of elastic, it becomes thinner as well as longer. The particles of gas move farther and farther apart. A less and less number of them are to be found in each cubic inch of space. But however large the containing vessel may be, there is always as much gas in one part as in another part. The gas is always equally distributed through the whole. It always accommodates itself to the size and shape of the vessel, stretching out in every direction so as to pervade the entire space. It is more or less dense according to the space it has to fill. The density of the air in the lower levels of the air ocean is much affected by heat. One cold morning, we will suppose, a man encloses exactly one cubic foot of air and weighs it. He weighs not the vessel containing the air, but the air itself, just that amount of it which will fill, without stretching, a measure one foot high, one foot broad, and one foot deep. There are delicate instruments made for such delicate weighing operations. The weather changes and becomes much warmer. Some hours later, the man does the same again. He encloses another cubic foot of air 
and weighs it. He finds that the second supply, being warmer, is lighter in weight than the first supply. The reason why is not distant. Increased heat has driven the particles of air farther apart. The number of floating particles in a cubic foot of air is not so great as a few hours earlier. Something more than a cubic foot of air would now be required to weigh the same as a cubic foot of air did in the early morning. For the material of which it is made is stretched out more widely. Therefore, it has grown thinner. If we knew exactly how many air particles were in the cubic foot of cold air, and if we could now enclose a supply of warm air containing just that number of particles, it would weigh the same as the cubic foot of cold air. But it would not be a cubic foot of air. It would be larger. Warm air near the level of the sea is always lighter than cold air. Warm air swells, occupies more room, and is disposed to flow upward. Cold air shrinks, takes up less room, and is disposed to flow downward. This is equally true of the two interwoven atmospheres, that of dry gases and that of water vapor. In the higher levels of the ocean of air, a somewhat different state of things is found. The density of the air is mainly the result of the Earth's attraction, though also affected by heat and cold. If it were not for the changing power of gravitation, each particle of air would rush as far as possible from all other particles of air till the entire atmosphere had melted away into distant space. This binding power steadily lessens, mile by mile, with greater distance from Earth's surface, and the weight of the down-pressing air above lessens also. So in upper regions of the atmosphere, air expands, not from heat, but from lessened weight and attraction. The cold in those higher levels is intense. Nevertheless, the air particles spring farther apart, and the air grows thinner. The atmosphere of vapor reaches to a great height, but, like the atmosphere of dry gases, it is far less dense above than below. End of chapter 13